Okay, the first reading is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 12 to 20, and it is page 2 of the Red Pew Bible. Oh, sorry, it's Genesis 2, 15 to 25, 2, 15 to 25. Okay. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to, for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, it was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And the second reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, and that's page 809. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the, food for, and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her, with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Father, we thank you for your word and we do pray that you would give us minds now that are attentive and hearts that are flexible and uh, are repentant and wanting to serve you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just over a year ago, there were some explosive allegations made about the sexual behaviour of some of the Australian Rugby League players in Christchurch, New Zealand. Do you remember that? It's hard to forget it because it was a scandal in the media for uh, quite some time. Uh, it's, you know, those footballers, it, they may or may not have done anything which was actually illegal, 
but the abhorrent uh, nature of what they did it was so vile that it was condemned by many people. Uh, the allegations, you may recall, put massive pressure on the NRL to uh, think real hard about uh, how to uh, change the culture and the attitude towards women uh, amongst its players. Uh, one commentator, I think it was Phil Gould, he said that it was the sledgehammer to the back of the neck that the NRL needed in order to address the problem. There were, over time, other commentators who took a more lenient view. Uh, there was a kind of an attitude that said, oh, well, you know, uh, sure, the blokes made a mistake. Uh, don't you love that word? Um, but, you know, they were away from their missuses and they'd had a few too many and they made a mistake and, um, you know, why should their careers be on the line? It was painful yet instructive to watch the television interviews with some of the women. Uh, I'm not just talking about the young woman who was involved on the night, whose uh, life was in tatters, but also the wife of the most prominent player involved. For her, it wasn't just the vile form of the actual sex sexual behaviour uh, that had ripped her heart out. Uh, for her, it was her nightmare uh, was that her husband had been unfaithful uh, in no matter what form that unfaithfulness took. Uh, indeed, if rather than it have been an orgy, uh, if it had been a secret romantic affair, then the damage to her may have even been greater. It certainly would have been a slightly different form of damage. The media sends out a confusing message, doesn't it? Um, if you've read the papers just yesterday about the uh, particular executive who's now lost his job because of uh, sexual immorality, you can see how true this is. Uh, on the one hand, the media condemns adultery, especially when it kind of makes a story which sells papers. But on the other hand, uh, the media shows TV programs and movies that glamorise casual sex and romantic affairs, uh, as if those things add sort of an adventurous and tantalising dimension to life. Of course, it's left to others to pick up the pieces of those broken lives afterwards. All sin is wrong, but why is sexual sin in particular so damaging? Now, uh, today we're going to take another look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You don't need to look that up in your Bibles at the moment, because uh, firstly, I think it would be helpful in terms of us understanding 1 Corinthians 6 to look at some of the background in the Bible uh, in terms of uh, what God says about sex. Now, let me ask you this question. What, what, do, you, what do you reckon? Uh, what, would most people in our community think that the Bible would be a good place to start uh, in terms of getting some sex education, uh, to learn about sex? Is the Bible the kind of book that you'd refer to? Hardly. I mean, what do most people think about the Bible's view of sex? It's pretty down on sex, you know, that the uh, Bible's just kind of got long lists of things that you're not supposed to do and uh, as if God is some kind of a cosmic killjoy. But uh, the Bible is, in fact, profoundly and wonderfully positive about sex. 
in fact i would argue that it is the best book to learn about sex from because surprise surprise in genesis chapters one and two we learn that it was actually god who created sex how about that eh? why don't we turn to genesis one and two and of course we could spend a lot more time on this but i just want to make a couple of points in order to provide a bit of a framework for our thinking and in Genesis chapter 1 uh, we see certainly that God is the one who has created sex obviously but we see that uh, God has created sex with very clear purposes in mind and I want us to explore those purposes for sex uh, in chapter 1 verses 27 to 28 let me read that for you so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Okay, um, from that those verses what is God's purpose for sex God's purpose for sex is to be fruitful and to fill the earth um, <clears throat> to have babies in other words <clears throat> and uh, with the crowd that's out there in the Sunday school in the creche now we can see you guys are being very dutiful in that regard uh, the, the, the having of children and the creation of families uh, is uh, fundamental to God's purpose for sex. Uh, sounds like it's stating the obvious, but it's not necessarily the way some people view it these days. But it's more than that. Um, because secondly, in chapter 2, uh, verses 18 to 25, we are told about... Here, here we have a second creation narrative... And we are told about the creation of Eve. Uh, God had looked at all that he had made and he saw that everything was good, except for the fact that the man was alone and that was not good. And so God created a companion for Adam. Uh, God created someone with whom Adam could enjoy uh, deep, personal, uh, intimate relationship uh, she is different to Adam uh, she is a she but because she is different there is this opportunity for a profound unity to exist between the two of them chapter 2 verses 23 to 25 the man said this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Uh, in sex, we see that uh, they are united with one another physically, obviously, but it is much more than a mere physical act. 
Um, they are united emotionally. They are united at the, the deepest level of their personhood, at the deepest level of who they are in terms of their identity as people. They are naked, exposed, vulnerable. And there is a profound trust which they have one to the other. They feel no shame. They know this is right and wonderful. Sex is meant to be a joyful, wonderful experience of pleasure that joins them together, that makes the two into one relationally. It is an experience of trust. Now that's true of our own observations, isn't it? Um, when you think about it, what is the hardest thing to rebuild in a, in a marriage after adultery has taken place? Trust. Trust. Because the, uh, the, the profound unity has been breached, has been broken, and the person feels vulnerable. But friends, God has not only created sex, and he's not only created sex with purpose, but in his wisdom he has created the right context for sex. And this is what we see in verse 24, if I can go back to that for a moment. Uh, in verse 24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. That is, a man leaves uh, his, his own family, his parents, and he cleaves to his wife such that a new family unit is created. Sex is designed for marriage. And marriage in the Bible uh, ought to be one man, one woman, united exclusively to each other for life. One flesh. Now, let me say, um, because I know this will be a concern to people, that uh, divorce is sometimes permitted in the Bible. Um, it is not God's plan. It's not God's intention in creation. But it is permitted only as a concession to uh, human sinfulness. But um, one man, one woman united exclusively for life is God's plan for marriage. And so we see that God has created uh, sex for the creation of children. Uh, he's created sex for the enjoyment and for the binding together of a man and a woman for life. We see that sex is therefore something which is wonderful and that sex is for marriage. I think it's helpful to say something about singleness as well because the reality is that we are all single at various times in our lives. Uh, we're all born single, um, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, many of us uh, will spend the latter period of our life as single people and some of us will 
spend all of our lives as single people, uh, which can be tough at times. But it's helpful to note that the Bible does not see marriage as being the only way or even the way to find fulfilment in life. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, first of all, sin has changed marriage. Uh, in Genesis 3, if you've got that open, um, Adam and Eve uh, rebelled against God. And when they, eat, when they ate that fruit, uh, that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, when they ate from that fruit, though, what they were doing is that they were, uh, they were thumbing their nose at God and they were, they were declaring their independence from God. And as a result, their relationships changed. Their relationships were damaged. Their relationship with God and their relationship with one another. If you look at verse 8, after they'd eaten of the fruit of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when God walked past them in the, in the, in the garden, what did they do? They hid themselves. They were ashamed. They hid themselves. The open relationship which they had with God was now fractured. They hid from him. Um, when they looked at each other and looked at themselves and they realised that they were naked, that they were exposed, that they were vulnerable to one another, what did they do? In verse 7, they covered themselves quite pathetically with some leaves. And when God asked Adam what was going on, as if God didn't know, what, what did Adam do in verse 12? Well, he turned on his wife, that woman, who, by the way, you put here, she made me do it. And so human sinfulness meant that, um, uh, that relationships were fractured and that uh, human marriage is no longer as good as God intended. Human marriage, indeed, does not bring ultimate satisfaction. Many marriages are far from satisfying. But secondly, in regards to singleness, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which we'll look at later on this year, uh, in some ways, the person who is single uh, has a greater freedom, a greater ability uh, to serve God than is the person who is married and uh, is loaded with the responsibilities of providing for their spouse and looking after their children and so on. Uh, and so there are Christians who, uh, you know, some Christians choose singleness for that purpose. Uh, some Christians find that singleness is the state that God has given them and they utilise the liberty, the freedoms that they have uh, and the mobility that they have in order to uh, serve God in ways that they would be restricted uh, if they were married. Now, thirdly, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus teaches that in heaven there will be no marriage. Uh, it's helpful to think through, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, we sometimes think that we'll be married to our spouses when we get to heaven and as wonderful as that gift of marriage has been to us, in heaven there will be an even greater satisfaction and that is our relationship with God. Uh, in heaven we will all be single, uh, which of course means that Christians who are single 
now are in no way any different to others in heaven. It's not like in heaven you've got a whole bunch of marrieds and a whole bunch of singles. Right? And Jesus, of course, in Matthew 22 is addressing the question of what about the, you know, the, the, the woman who can't cook very well? You know, all of her husbands die one after the other. Who will she be married to in heaven? We'll be single in heaven. And so the question then is, where is ultimate human satisfaction to be found? If not in marriage, then where? And it's with that in mind that uh, we turn to our actual passage today, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you'd like to open that up in your Bibles. Uh, by the way, uh, that was the introduction. Uh, we now get into the guts of it, but the introduction, uh, we've really done all the hard work. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 now falls into place a lot more easily and quickly. Corinth, as we've seen throughout this series, uh, was an immoral city, a seaport city. We saw last week how Greek philosophy had was a part of the thinking of people in Corinth and indeed in the church and that uh, Greek philosophy had said that the spiritual world is what matters, not the physical world and therefore your bodies don't really matter and therefore what you do with your bodies doesn't matter very much either. And so in verses 15 and 16, there were some church members who had no problem with the idea of paying for sex. Paul disagrees. Uh, last week, we looked at his first argument, which was in verses 12 through to 14, where Paul argued that uh, contrary to Greek philosophy, that our bodies are of incredible value, that our bodies are of eternal value to God. We have resurrection bodies. And so what we do with our bodies matters enormously. In verse 20, we are to honour God with our bodies. Um, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord in all ways that we use our bodies, that we use our hands and our legs and our brains and our body, but particularly in this situation, how we use our bodies in bed. Now his second argument is what I want to talk about today. And it's in verses 15 through to 17. Let me read it for you. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, friends, if we are Christians then we are people who experience the most profoundly significant relationship that there is. And that is relationship with God, our creator. Uh, the Bible teaches that we are profoundly united in one spirit with Christ. Um, you see, Christ... By his death on the cross, his death 
for our sins becomes our death to sin. Uh, his resurrection from the grave becomes our resurrection to eternal life. Uh, Christ, by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, uh, God dwells in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says. God dwells in us through his spirit. And so we are involved in this incredibly profound relationship. And in one sense, human marriage uh, is a pointer to that relationship. It points us to the relationship between God and us, between us and Christ. Uh, for example, if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 5 for a moment, um, and you'll find that on page 829, uh, in that section from verse 22 to verse 33, where Paul expounds on the relationship between a man and a woman and how we are to serve one another, uh, in that passage, if you have a look at verse, verses 30 and 31, 31 rather, of 30. Paul says in verse 30, For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What's he quoting? Genesis chapter 1. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Now, you see, how is the church described in that passage? We are the bride of Christ. How is Christ described? Christ is the husband of the church. Uh, in that passage and in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians and also in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, this spiritual unity... That uh, means that we are described as being the body of Christ. The marriage union is a wonderful gift from God, but there is only one union which lasts forever. There is only one union which will bring ultimate joy and the kind of satisfaction that we all yearn for, whether we're single or married. We yearn for this relationship. And what is this union? It is our union with Christ. That is where fulfilment is to be found. And so if you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 then, in verses 15 through to 17, Paul's point is this. If we are members of Christ's body... That is, if we are like his arms and his legs and his torso, if we are members of Christ's body, if Christ by his spirit dwells in us, then in verse 15 it is incomprehensible that we would become united with a prostitute. Incomprehensible. Paul says never. May it never be. Now, by the way, Paul uh, 
you know, prostitution was just the particular issue that he was addressing there in one in in Corinth. But Paul could have easily have spoken about, you know, the attractive woman at the office, or the uh, handsome divorcee at the gym, or the lonely widow in the retirement village. In verse 16, it is incomprehensible that we would become one flesh with its profound purpose of intimacy and trust and commitment that we would become one flesh with anybody outside of the purposes of God in marriage. Incomprehensible. But yet it happens. Christians do fall to temptation. In the past 20 years or so of being a minister, I've, I've had to help um, pick up the pieces of the lives of Christians who have fallen into sexual sin, um, particularly in terms of adultery and sex before marriage, promiscuity. One of the things which I've observed, and I, I can't prove this, but one thing I've observed when Christians are involved in a sexual relationship outside of God's purpose in marriage, especially when they go through a period of time of covering it up before they're found out, uh, what I've observed is that the inner turmoil that the Christian experiences uh, is, I think, greater than the inner turmoil that a non-Christian experiences in the, when they're committing adultery. They experience a very, very, very deep guilt. And I think it makes sense. Because it's not just that they're feeling guilty because they actually belong to their spouse or their possible future spouse. More than that, they know that they actually belong to Christ. And they've betrayed both. Uh, it, it can sometimes uh, result in physical sickness. Um, there's been times when uh, I've known people who've fallen into very deep depression and we've not known why and we've been ministering to the depression and then en route we've found out that the person's actually been, the Christian's been involved in an adulterous affair for some time. Uh, which has caused this inner conflict, this dissonance, this, uh, this incongruous uh, relationship between what they know in their head is right uh, or what they're doing and what they know in their heart is right. Now, of course, uh, we need to say that there is complete and deep forgiveness uh, in the gospel for all who turn back to Christ. And that's the great news. God created sex. God understands its power. And that's why he gave us a wonderful thing called marriage. Uh, I've been reading the marriage vows over the last week or so as I've been pre preparing a couple for marriage. And uh, it's been quite edifying 
just to look at the, the wedding vows. I, I, we, in our church, we use the traditional ones. Um, I've, I'm hesitant to let people write their own vows. Um, some people can write really good vows, but uh, the tried and tested vows are uh, often pretty good. And these are the ones that I use to marry people. Um, can I share with you some of, just excerpts, just some of what the groom commits himself to? Uh, this is what the groom is asked. Will you have this woman as your wife? to live together as God has ordained in the holy state of matrimony? Will you love her, cherish her, honour and protect her in sickness and in health and forsaking all others be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? And that's the point in the wedding ceremony where all the aunties are getting out their tissues and wiping their tears and I'm kind of struggling to hold it together myself emotionally. And, and when the, the groom places the, the ring on the finger of his bride, this is what he says to her. He says, with this ring I wed you, with my body I serve you, with all that I am and all that I have I honour you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not a bad summary of God's purposes in the one flesh relationship, is it? Not a bad summary. It's, it's a commitment to intimacy, a commitment to serving one another with the body, which means in the bedroom, amongst other things. It's unconditional. It's not so long as things are going okay. There's no strings attached. It's lifelong. And it is to the exclusion of all others. It's a great union. An even better union than that is to be in union with Christ. And friends, if we are in union with Christ... If we are glued to Christ as it is, then we will flee from sexual immorality. Uh, you see in verse 18, Paul says to flee from sexual immorality. Uh, he doesn't just say, don't indulge in sexual immorality. He doesn't just say, don't be seduced by it. He doesn't just say, don't be neutral about it or... No, he says that we are to flee from it, that we are to run from it, that we are to have nothing to do with it. And so how can we do that? Uh, we live in a world where there is temptation and seduction all around. We face it in our daily lives. How do we flee from sexual immorality. Come back next week and I'll tell you. Because next week my, 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 my passage is simply going to be verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God who has created um, us as human beings, male and female, we thank you that you have created
created uh, sexuality and that uh, you have created marriage and family life. Father, we uh, thank you that in Jesus that we can have a profound unity with you. And we pray that the union that we have with Christ uh, would mean that we would be people who are committed uh, to uh, not being in union with, with anyone outside of your purposes for marriage. Father, we pray for each one of us that we would think through this issue and we pray that we would consider areas in our life uh, where we are not honouring you. And we pray that uh, through hearing your word and through the ministry of your spirit that you would grant us the, the knowledge and the strength to repent of any sin that we are involved in in this area. May we be people who are committed to purity and committed to honouring you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.